Hello and welcome to the Spine and Nerve Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hovez. And my name is Dr. Nicholas Carvelos. And thank you guys for listening and paying attention and watching. Uh, we hope that you are finding value and are learning something from all these topics uh, that we've been covering. Uh, we're going to continue going back to our basics and revisiting some of the kind of bread and butter topics in pain medicine. Uh, today, we're going to address uh, discogenic pain. Um, and so it's going to be a, a little bit repetitive kind of um, as we go through these because that's what basics are. Basics are repetitive. You learn the fundamentals and they, you kind of, they sound, you know, you repeat things over and over and over so that they do become basic to us, right? And so, um, yeah, I think that's like what I got for our intro. Uh, Dr. K, you want to start uh, talking a little bit about uh, discogenic pain for us? Yeah, and to, to Dr. Hovis's point, Obviously, there's going to be significant overlap here, especially when we uh, when we uh, recently have discussed the lumbar radiculopathy. Of course, there's going to be some overlap there, and even with the facetogenic pain, because we talked about the degenerative cascade of the spine. Uh, but yeah, you know, medicine ultimately is repetition, you know, and, and that's you know how how we best learn it and and how we uh, perfect our, uh, our passions and our craft. Um, we will obviously uh, try to bring in some information that we haven't necessarily uh, uh, emphasized in the past. So, for example, today. Uh, we're going to cover some uh, basic things in terms of the definition, the epidemiology, the anatomy, which are going to be somewhat of a uh, review. Pathophysiology will be a little bit of review. The last thing that we'll make sure that we definitively talk about will be modic changes, which I don't think we've discussed necessarily in depth in the past. So that'll be a relatively new uh, concept that we bring in. And then if we have time at the end, uh, as always with these uh, 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 kind of back to the basic talks, we'll try to talk a little bit about clinical presentation and then we'll save the approach to uh, treatment uh, for the journal club and uh, case presentation. Um, so we'll focus on uh, uh, these features uh, today. So starting with definition, um, so you know, based on a few uh, uh, large um, articles, I just tried to kind of create a, uh, a fair definition of uh, discogenic pain here because it, you know it is, um, you know, it is something that I think that uh, we continue to work to optimize, uh, to define and optimize the definition of. But ultimately, we can think of lumbar discogenic pain as a painful disease process due to compromise of the lumbar disc, often uh, characterized by features including, uh, but definitely not limited to, uh, internal disc disruption, annular fissures, modic changes, and uh, often presenting as uh, debilitating centralized low back pain. So that's our definition. In terms of epidemiology, so like many of our other uh, processes that we've talked about, there is variability out there, but some uh, some common statistics that you'll see out there, uh, we know that low back pain is a leading cause of years lived with disability. Uh, we also know that most studies document that around 40% uh, of low back pain is predominantly due, or at least discogenic pain is a significant contributor to about 40% of cases of chronic low back pain. Now, moving to the anatomy, and like I said, this will be a little bit of review from uh, a couple of our other talks, but um, uh, very uh, important concepts because, you know, ultimately, um, for you know, for our specialty and, and, and for dealing with chronic pain in general, uh, discogenic pain, as we just kind of heard in the statistics, discogenic pain is so common and 
management of it, management of it is a process. It's a it's a lifelong process. So the education component to it in uh, uh, really understanding it and, and communicating it to the patient becomes critical. So uh, you know, understand the anatomy and pathophysiology uh, uh, is is critical. So in terms of that uh, anatomy. Just thinking, starting with the uh, function of the disc. So essentially, the, the disc is providing stability uh, to the spine, especially during axial uh, compression as well as uh, rotation and bending. Um, and it does provide some level of limited range of motion uh, to the spine and specifically to the lumbar spine uh, for our discussion today. The disc itself uh, is composed of largely three elements. So the, uh, as we've talked about in the past, the uh, uh, fibrocartilaginous uh, outer annulus fibrosis, as well as the more uh, gelatinous inner nucleus pulposus, and then the vertebral end plates. So starting with the uh, nucleus pulposus, so um, as we've discussed in the past, the nucleus pulposus is predominantly composed of uh, type 2 uh, collagen and uh, multiple other molecules. And one of the major molecules that, uh, that we'll see in the uh, nucleus pulposus, importantly, is a molecule called agarcan. And the uh, reason that this molecule is so important is because it is a, a proteoglycan that attracts water. And obviously that is uh, uh, essential to the function of the disc uh, to have this hydration, to have this uh, strong water content, because that ultimately uh, uh, leads to the, uh, um, the ability for the disc to do its function, uh, which is to uh, resist these uh, axial uh, loads, um, uh, the uh, axial compression and uh, compressive loads, and, and importantly, to maintain a disc height as well. Um, so that's the uh, nucleus pulposus, and that's important to remember in terms of the makeup of the nucleus pulposus. Uh, uh, like I said, type 2 collagen uh, and then this agarcan proteoglycan, because when we talk about the uh, uh, ultimately pathology and, and the, uh, the disease process, the changes in that makeup uh, will, will become important. And then moving to the annulus fibrosis, so um, uh, this. Uh, the annulus fibrosis is actually interestingly differs in terms of the inner annulus fibrosis and then the outer annulus fibrosis because for the inner annulus fibrosis it's actually fairly similar to the makeup of the nucleus pulposus in terms of a predominant um, type 2 uh, collagen uh, composition however as you move to the outer edge of the annulus fibrosis you get more type 1 collagen uh, arranged in the, what we call these lamella that are uh, importantly oriented uh, in slightly different directions um, um, and that contributes to the tensile strength and that's the primary function of the annulus fibrosis is to have this strong tensile strength and to prevent the uh, when, when there are these significant um, uh, uh, compressive loads to prevent the nucleus, uh, nucleus pulposus from um, uh, being extruded out. Lastly, I want to talk about the uh, vertebral end plates. So this is a critical uh, structure. Um, uh, it really uh, has two major functions. So obviously, one, uh, to provide an attachment of the intervertebral disc to the vertebrae. But uh, critically important, the other major uh, purpose of this, of this uh, vertebral end plate is to allow the um, ability of nutrients and oxygen to get to the disc. Because when we think about a healthy disc, um, there's three important components to it that, again, when we talk about the pathophysiology will come into play. But a, a healthy, uh, a mature disc doesn't have 
uh, much nerve supply, doesn't have much blood supply except for as we'll talk about to that vertebral end plate and then maybe a millimeter or so of the outer annulus fibrosis. So relatively, uh, um, uh, relatively sp um, limited nerve supply, vascular supply, as well as uh, immunoprivileged, so not a lot of immune cells. And we'll contrast that to when we start to get uh, uh, disc uh, pathology. But you know, going back to the uh, vertebral end plate, so as we brought up, um, uh, th this, uh, th this cartilaginous end plate um, has a uh, very significant vascular supply uh, and capillary network, which then allows nutrients and oxygens to diffuse uh, to the intervertebral disc itself. And that's predominantly, as we've discussed in the past, that's predominantly how the disc gets those nutrients and oxygen is through passive diffusion from the vertebral end plate. So um, now moving to uh, pathophysiology, and I thought I would start out with some uh, risk, proven risk factors in terms of uh, discogenic pain uh, and going into each one of them briefly. Um, uh, and then the last risk factor we'll talk about kind of leads us into the, uh, the degenerative cascade of the, of the spine. Um, so starting with um, uh, genetics, obesity, smoking, and then lastly we'll talk about aging, which like I said will lead us into the degenerative cascade. But these are kind of the these are the risk factors that have been proven through the literature uh, to uh, increase the uh, uh, or contribute to uh, discogen uh, disc degeneration and ultimately discogenic pain. So, uh, genetics. Not to get too much into the weeds with this. I know that we've brought up in the past that um, there's certain uh, 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 genetic alterations uh, or mutations that lead to an increased risk of uh, disc degeneration. We, I think we, in our disc herniation talk, we brought up that if you have a mutation in the uh, gene coding for uh, collagen, um, um, that that can lead to, uh, uh, specifically for type 2 collagen, that that can lead to um, uh, an in increased risk of this uh, disc degeneration. Also, um, uh, also there's certain genes coding for the protein we talked about, agarcan, and if, and if there's mutations in those, in, in those genes, that also obviously can lead to an increased risk of a disc degeneration, discogenic pain. The, I think the key take-home point here is that we're relatively early on in understanding the, um, uh, uh, the uh, totality and all the details of how genetics contribute. Um, uh, to ultimately to increase risk of disc degeneration and discogenic pain, um, but we know that that can play a significant, uh, a significant role. Um, obesity, we've talked about in the past, it's not just the increased stress on the disc, but we also know that there, in, in the setting of obesity, there's increased circulation of, insert, of certain inflammatory markers that we've talked about in the past, interleukin-6, CRP, TNF-alpha, that are uh, going to ultimately contribute to uh, disc degeneration and discogenic pain. Uh, smoking, so it's not uh, just that smoking can lead to uh, decreased uh, oxygen getting to the disc uh, through the carboxyhemoglobin me uh, mechanism, but also um, there's been studies showing that uh, nicotine itself um, can have a negative impact on um, uh, on the proliferation of uh, intervertebral disc cells as well as uh, that extracellular matrix uh, production. Um, so now moving to aging, because like I said, that's going to bring us to the important understanding of the uh, degenerative uh, cascade of the disc itself. Before we uh, yeah. kind of step into aging, I just wanted to kind of think about it from a clinical and 
I guess, uh, you know, the ways that we can kind of bring this down to things we can do, right? You brought up genetics. We can't change genetics. Not yet. Um, you know, at, at some point in the future, possibly, right? But, you know, modifiable risk factors are the things that we generally talk about. We're about to step into aging. You know, as far as we've learned so far, we cannot modify aging. Uh, you know, the, the goal of all of us is that we, we do age because that means that we are continuing to live our lives. Um, but obesity and smoking are two modifiable risk factors. Uh, and the most important modifi modifiable risk factors for many disease processes, not just for discogenic pain or for, uh, you know, chronic pain in general. Uh, and so, you know, when, you know, I know we kind of went over that quickly because we have talked about this many times in the past, um, but, you know, reminding patients, reminding ourselves that obesity and smoking are extremely important risk factors and they're modifiable, right? They are things that we can do to help patients with obesity and with smoking cessation. And so, you know, we've we've covered smoking, I think, in an entire podcast before. Uh, uh, I think it was titled uh, Smoking Still the New Smoking. Um, is that right? I don't yes. remember. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, there are these are things that we're glossing over because, you know, there are some things that we want to get to in this talk. But I don't I didn't want to miss the opportunity to emphasize these are modifiable risk factors. These are things that we have to make sure that we're talking to patients about that we're thinking about because they're going to make the most impact in the long run on things that we can actually change for the patient. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when we think about you know aging and the uh, degenerative cascade of the spine and, and obviously including the disc itself, th this is a natural process. And I think that's you know an important thing to educate you know uh, patients on um, uh, because you know when you have a 60, 70 year old come into clinic and they're and they're kind of focused on hey I have I have disc degeneration. I saw it on my MRI. Um, you know, just making sure that they kind of understand understand the what that really means and and how we're gonna uh, uh, how we're gonna approach it from a treatment perspective. But not to not to kind of focus too much on hey I have disc degeneration. I'm in trouble and I'm not you know I'm not gonna be able to do anything because I have this disc degeneration. Yeah, I think there's a, a whole push from the spine world to really focus on using terminology like age-related spine mm -hmm. changes or things along those lines um, to get away from, you know, the patients coming in, which we've all seen of, you know, oh, I have four herniated discs and my, my you know, it's all bone on bone and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's why I hurt. And like, well, where's your pain? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, like I said, we've talked about that before, but I, I think as we think about these age-related changes and aging in general, um, using that terminology, I think can be helpful for patients uh, to you know, to not focus on the disc degeneration as, you know, always the pathologic process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and important. Yeah, exactly. And and also saying, hey, there's nothing I can do about this. I have disc degeneration. I just have to sit here. And it's like, no, okay, we can <laughs> we can make some positive impacts here. Um, so. Yeah, so aging, it's a natural process, as we know, uh, through which an organism develops and accumulates damage both on the cellular as well as the molecular level over time. Uh, specifically for disc processes, we can see age-related changes occur relatively early compared you know, potentially to other uh, entities in our body because we can see significant changes as early as the second decade of life, um, uh, especially when, obviously when we're looking on MRI imaging. Um, the degenerative cascade includes key events that uh, 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 include the, uh, a certain um, 
uh, certain factors uh, that include the transition from type 2 to type 1 collagen in the nucleus pulposa. So as we brought up in the beginning, uh, keeping in mind what that kind of um, uh, natural uh, baseline state of all these different components are. So we talked about how the nucleus pulposa is, is, is uh, in a more healthy state is predominantly composed of type 2 collagen and this high agrican uh, proteoglycan water content. But as we have this degenerative cascade, we transition from the type 2 collagen and the nucleus pulposus to type 1. And that's associated with the decrease in agrican content, which obviously is going to lead to a decrease in hydration, which will lead to a decrease in disc height, increased fibrosis, and ultimately a decreased ability for the disc to cope with uh, loading, including axial loading. Um, the uh, in the nucleus, uh, sorry, in the annulus fibrosis, we have a transition from that baseline uh, strong type one collagen uh, content to type two collagen content in the annulus fibrosis, and that is going to lead to a compromise in its primary function, which we talked about was uh, tensile strength. So there'll be a uh, decreased type one collagen um, uh, uh, composition, increased type two, decreased tensile strength, and then ultimately a decreased ability to contain the nucleus pulposus uh, during these uh, axial loads, um, which ultimately can lead to annular fissures. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about those and, and, and how uh, they can be uh, uh, contributing to discogenic pain uh, ultimately. Um, the other major thing I want to talk about in terms of this uh, degenerative cascade includes the vertebral end plates. And so I, um, you, when we try to, and, and as, you can, as you can probably um, uh, ascertain from hearing all this, this is very much a, um, uh, a multifactorial process. It, it is very much a cascade. Um, but there are studies showing that, or supporting the, the thought process that Compromise to the vertebral end plate may be a precipitating factor, um, especially animal model studies uh, to support that. And, and the vertebral end plate is susceptible to um, stress uh, injury, to ultimately to small fractures um, that can develop. And there's a thought process that the, that may be some of really the precipitating event that then really starts to lead to the compromise of the homeostasis of the disc and, and these changes that we brought up um, uh, um, in terms of the uh, changes in the collagen and, and, and structural integrity of the disc itself. So um, compromise to the vertebral end plate, including calcification of the, uh, of the end plate and that cartilaginous end plate, um, ultimately, obviously, you can you can uh, see how that could lead to impaired nutrient and oxygen uh, transport to the disc. And an important component, uh, important um, uh, factor to think about when we think about the lack of oxygen supply, as well as uh, a compromise to the nutrient flow to the disc, that's actually going to lead to a very acidic environment. Um, so a, a buildup of uh, uh, lactic acid in the disc and an increased acidity of the disc. And that leads to multiple things, including uh, um, you know, senescence of the, uh, of the disc cells and even apoptosis of those uh, disc cells. So you let me see if I can summarize that a little bit for us. All right. So what we're talking about is there's a structural disruption of the disc uh, and the homeostasis of that disc, uh, which leads to increased nerve fiber growth uh, into the disc. 
So we get more nociceptive fibers, uh, more things being able to sense the pain, right? Uh, there's increased angiogenesis, so vascular supply coming into the disc. Uh, and then when you talked about all of those kind of immune cells and inflammatory markers that start uh, coming into that area you know, because of the new blood supply, because of uh, the new nerves that are growing into that area. And so all of this leads to a structure that previously wasn't uh, having a lot of innervation or a lot of vascular supply that now does and now can become a significant pain generator. And so now we get disc pain, right? And so as we're thinking about now we accept the disc as a pain generator, we're kind of understanding how this structure becomes a structure that can become a pain generator. Um, and we're thinking about next steps in workup and obviously, you know, all, with all things of the spine, whenever we're uh, thinking about interventions, really wanting to understand the anatomy uh, we get an MRI. And one of the things that comes up often, um, you know, is annular tears and then modic changes. Um, and so Dr. K, can you please introduce us to modic changes and maybe give us a little bit of rundown of what exactly that means? There are three modic uh, changes that we'll talk about here in a second. And it's really the type one and type two that have been proven through research and the uh, through research to really be associated with uh, a painful disc or just discogenic pain. So mo what are modic changes? So modic changes are uh, abnormal signal patches of an abnormal signal in the vertebral body itself adjacent to the disc um, that obviously we're visualizing on MRI. So if we go through the different types of modic changes, there are type one is hypo-intense on T1 images and hyper-intense on T2 images, and it's rep uh, representative of inflammatory edema, which is going to be associated with uh, a compromise to the vertebral end plate and increase in inflammatory mediators, uh, including interleukin-6 and 8 um, uh, themselves. Now, in terms of type 2 modic changes, so that's going to be different on imaging. So here we actually have hyper-intense on both T1 and T2 uh, weighted images, and that's going to be typically an evolution of the type 1 uh, modic changes. So um, uh, what, what it actually is, is is fatty infiltration, which, like I said, typically is the evolution from the type 1 to type 2 modic changes. And then type 3 modic changes, which um, to, to date, the research would not show has a strong, uh, as strong association with a, a painful disc. But type 3 modic changes are um, hypo-intense on both T1 and T2. Uh, images uh, representative of sclerosis. So, uh, uh, like I said, what's the clinical importance and utility of these modic changes? Well, they have been studied and found to be associated with discogenic low back pain. So the research has shown that both type 1 and type 2 modic changes occur more often. Uh, so if you look at uh, like population studies where they've taken patients who have chronic low back pain and patients who do not have chronic low back pain, essentially what they found was that type 1 and type 2 uh, modic changes are present more often in the, in the patients that have the low back pain compared to the uh, asymptomatic individuals. Um, and you know some of the conclusions you can draw not only uh, from those population studies but other studies, uh, for example, uh, uh, discography studies where um, they've identified motor changes on um, on imaging and then uh, and then uh, you know similar to what we talked about with uh, facet G disease where you either uh, numb or provoke that uh, facet. So trying to provoke the disc that you suspect to be painful. Um, looking at those studies. 
ultimately the conclusions include that you know motor changes are a marker of low back pain and they imply that the affected disc is a significant source of the symptoms um, the one thing I would mention in terms of when you look at all the statistics, because uh, we always think about sensitivity versus specificity. So I always remember uh, spin and snout. I think that's a, a good way to remember it. So a specificity, you're going to be ruling in a diagnosis versus uh, a sensitivity ruling out a diagnosis. So motor changes have a high specificity, uh, meaning that they're unlikely to be a false uh, positive uh, uh, or less likely to be a false positive um, when you do see them on imaging. Um, uh, just to give some brief statistics, uh, to, to give ourselves a sense of you know, the value of, of these changes on imaging. So discography studies evaluating the diagnostic value of motor changes have found a likelihood ratio of 3.4 in regards to type 1 and type 2 changes uh, uh, correlating with the affected disc being a source of pain. So what does that mean in terms of that likelihood ratio? Essentially, what that translates to is about a 70% confidence that the uh, affected disc on imaging um, is a significant or predominant uh, cause of pain in that patient. Yeah. And so, you know, as we're thinking about all of these different uh, changes, I, I mean, obviously these are, are imaging changes that we're seeing. Uh, we, we kind of, Dr. Carvelis did a great job of walking us through this entire kind of cascade of things that happens as we start thinking about the the disc degeneration, which whether you know questionable of starting from uh, the disc itself versus the vertebral end plate, um, and then kind of progressing towards having these changes, which you know do corollary fairly well with some of the other uh, imaging things that we think about for uh, arthritis in other locations. Um, you know, we we start to see that you know the disc itself obviously can be uh, a a significant component of pain. Uh, the disc itself and the vertebral end plate, seeing as that, that whole uh, disc complex, um, you know, starts to have a very significant amount of changes that happen. Um, and so we have to, you know, we see them, you know, I think a lot of these things can look fairly impressive on imaging. And so, you know, patients can get very concerned when they see the imaging or when they uh, read the way that it's, it can be read by a radiologist on imaging. And so being able to Dissect, uh, digest it down for a patient saying, yeah, you know, these happen, these can be corollaries, but at the same time, you know, these are age-related changes um, and it still isn't necessarily, you know, the, the end of the world because we're starting to see these changes for you, right? Yeah. Um, because, and, you know, and then I think from, uh, to just kind of fill in maybe a couple of the blanks if for people who aren't uh, familiar with a lot of the pain medicine things, you know, uh, that Dr. Carvel's brought up the uh, discography, you know, uh, that we can, that's literally sticking a needle into the disc uh, and uh, pushing in a, a solution to try to you know, cause pain, increase the pr pressure within that disc, um, you know, has been done for uh, diagnostic as well as therapeutic purposes uh, in the past. Um, and so, you know, those are, those are ways that we can assess studies. And then, you know, a lot of these findings that we're talking about from imaging are now used as markers uh, that we look at to bring people into clinical trials as we're looking at ways to be able to treat this, right? And so, you know, I, I think a lot of this, the pathophysiology that we've covered so far, and especially this, uh, the modic changes and the imaging studies, you know, it, these are all necessary to be understood, um, but don't always have the most clinical implications uh, until we kind of bring the whole picture together. Is that a fair 
thing to say. Yeah, no, I, th- I think, you know, anytime we're, whether we're talking about knee arthritis or facetogenic disease or, or discogenic disease, it, it's very much, I think as we've tried to emphasize in all these talks, it's very much, you know, what's the patient's uh, symptoms, what's their exam, what do the uh, imaging findings show, and really, uh, and what's, what do our diagnostic procedures show, uh, whether that's facet, facet blocks or, or discography, really putting all those puzzle pieces together, what, do, what does our nerve, nerve, our EMG nerve conduction study show, and that's the beauty, I think, uh, if, uh, you know, having all those tools available to us to really try to optimize that diagnosis, because as we've emphasize in the past, you know, we can do a procedure or, or a surgery perfectly, but uh, if we don't have the right right diagnosis, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, I think we've kind of covered the, the pathophys and, you know, even so a lot of the, the imaging findings. Uh, actually, I want to maybe take one step back because you, you brought up something um, that I think is fairly common to see on imaging that uh, we didn't really talk too much about, um, but you talked about the the fissuring, or some you know people sometimes talk about you know finding a, a, an annular tears or annular fissures on on, on discs, um, and you know and sometimes you know I, I know I hear it often from patients they're like oh yeah my, I have back pain I have a tear in my L3 disc, uh, you know or, or something along those lines, um, you know so we brought it, you kind of brought up how as the collagen structure changes, uh, it kind of can make it more susceptible for, to those tears. Um, but can you maybe uh, give us a little bit more information ab- about maybe that, that tear itself or, may, or, or how that uh, can, can affect things for a patient? Um, well, I, I guess the uh, I guess the best way to put it would be there's different grades of those annular tears, so grade one through four, and grade one through three is easy just to think about. You know, as the tear goes from the inner, middle to outer third of the disc, and I guess the clinical, uh, and then grade four being that it starts to uh, not just be traveling from the inside to the out, but starting to be concentric, uh, wrapping around the disc. Um, and it's really uh, grade three and then obviously grade four that, that start to be fairly strongly associated with uh, the disc being a significant cause of the pain. Um, uh, so I guess bottom line is that especially as that uh, severity of the annular tear progresses, then yes, that very much could be a, a significant uh, source of, uh, you know, a, a point to the disc being a significant source of pain for the patient. Um, but again, to your point, also um, making sure the patient understands that this is, you know, part of the uh, degenerative cascade of the spine and that, um, you know, we do have tools to manage it. Awesome. That helps. Yeah. yeah, no, I think I think that's helpful. I think that kind of fills in uh, a little bit of the gaps that were there. Um, and yeah, and then I think from from that point, once we kind of talk about the pathophys and we talk about you know what's actually happening or uh, trying to educate the patient on it, you know, I, I know we've talked ad nauseum about starting to step through the you know our normal workup process of you know being able to make sure that uh, of exactly what's going on, take, walk them through the conservative options, um, and then we will likely transition into some of the more recent literature about how we are actually targeting uh, specifically some of these. Kind of more discogenic processes, um, and you know, probably I, I think just to give a little hints to people as what's to come next week. I, I think we're probably going to talk about some things that are uh, addressing modic changes, um, and so some of the newer procedures uh, that are that are looking at specifically addressing that, uh, as well as probably some uh, purely discogenic uh, treatments that uh, have been emerging over the past couple of years. 
Um, anything you want to add in a final uh, sentiment to our listeners? No, that's it. Thank you, guys. All right, guys. Stay tuned for those legal disclaimers, and we'll talk to you next week. But, uh, yeah. but if Clay was healthy, the Warriors wouldn't be barely fighting <laughs> for a playoff spot. Right. But even with, even without Clay, like, I wouldn't be shocked if they You're so tired beat uh, whoever they play in that first round. You know, a little reminiscent of the We Believe. Obviously not quite the We Believe because there's such championship pedigree on the. Now for that legal disclaimer, this podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It is not meant to be medical advice. If anything discussed may pertain to you, please seek counsel with your healthcare provider. The views expressed are those of the individuals expressing them. They may not represent the views of Spine and Nerve Diagnostic Center.